would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 126. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's page 517. Before reading on the word of the Lord, let's go to our God in prayer. Our great triune God, we count it such a privilege to know you, to worship you, to acknowledge by your grace alone that you are the sovereign king who rules and who reigns over all. We look to our risen Lord Jesus for life, for forgiveness of sins, for peace with God. And we look even now to the ongoing and tender sanctifying work of the spirit of the risen Christ to help us, to illuminate the words of Scripture, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear the great and wondrous truth and the hope of the gospel. And may Jesus always be central as we study your word in this place. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We'll stand together for the reading of God's word. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. That our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of our God. You may be seated. Now, the Bible has different ways of describing the Christian's identity, capturing for us what life is like in this fallen world as those who are people redeemed in Christ and are awaiting our heavenly home. There is the imagery, for example, of being engaged in a battle where we are, as it were, soldiers enlisted in that army of the Lord. We are called ambassadors, representatives of Christ our Lord, seeking to bear witness to his name. Or there is the imagery of being a runner in a race in which our charge is to lay aside those things that hinder, that which easily entangles and distracts, and instead to keep our gaze fixed upon Christ. But one identity label in particular, and that we find in this particular portion of the Psalter, is that of a pilgrim, a sojourner, or a traveler, those who are passing through one land on toward another destination. And this collection of 15 psalms from 120 to 134 all bear the same title, Songs of Ascent. And these are psalms for pilgrim people. These are psalms that would have served as a type of hymn book used by the people of the Lord as they would travel on their annual journeys from the surrounding region of Israel to the holy city of David, the place where the temple, of course, was contained, in which they would bring their sacrifices to the Lord, in which they would worship Him, in which they would gather as one people collectively to worship the Lord. And here is why I think this collection of psalms is still so relevant to us today. 
because we too are a pilgrim people traveling through this fallen world toward our heavenly home. This present evil age is not our permanent home. It is not our ultimate resting place. And if we are a pilgrim people, if this is our identity, then of course we are going to feel displaced. We are going to feel out of sorts, as it were, because in many ways we simply do not belong to the values, to the priorities, to the pursuits, and to the passions of this present age. And so as we look at Psalm 126 this morning, that which we want to give particular attention to is really the climactic and central portion of the psalm, which is very simply this. It is the Lord himself. It is the one who has done, the one who is doing, and the one who will continue to do great things for his people. Now, I'm convinced that much of the struggles that we bring into our own minds and hearts, and here I'm not talking about the trials that come through circumstances and so forth, but the struggles that we bring that are somewhat self-imposed, that we allow the mind and heart to have a misplaced focus, that we have shifted the gaze of our hearts away from the wonder of our God to the comparatively insignificant minor events of our own lives that we are, quite frankly, too enamored with ourselves. Sinclair Ferguson has a wonderful book that he's recently republished entitled Maturity. I think there are a few copies in the little bookstore. And he makes the point in that book that what oftentimes hinders Christian growth and maturity is that we care more about our own comfort, our own peace, our own happiness, getting our own way, than we do about living for the glory of God. Do we think of ourselves as great or of the Lord as the great one who has done great things? And this psalm certainly helps us to learn how to be a God-centered people as we dwell upon His greatness, even as we are called in this life to endure great hardship, suffering, and trial. And so let's look first this morning at the perspective of this psalm or the vision that this psalm casts for us. Now, psalms don't always provide us with their historical background or indicate to us who the author of the particular psalm might be. Sometimes we find superscriptions in those psalms that indicate the historical setting in which it may have been composed. Or we can look at the content of the psalm itself, and we can make a pretty reasonable deduction on when that psalm was written, or at the very least, the occasion in which such psalms would gain great historical emphasis. Now, here in Psalm 126, it seems as though it is the return from exile in Babylon, which is the joyous occasion being celebrated, as we just sang about from Psalm 126 in our hymnal. And you might recall back to the series that Pastor Frank Williams preached in the fall when we went through the book of Daniel. And it was the Babylonian exile in which that book was set, which was God's judgment because of the persistent idolatry of the children of Israel. It was the Lord God who had graciously given His people this land of Canaan as an inheritance when He redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. And their charge upon reception of that land was faithfulness, 
They were to offer covenant fidelity to the Lord God, their king. And yet they engaged in idolatry and in syncretism, that is the mixing of true and false worship. And while the Lord sent prophets to the people to warn them of coming judgment, to wake them up to the foolishness of their lives and call them to repentance, instead they dismissed those warnings and they persisted in rebellion, in arrogance, and in hard-heartedness. And really, they are no different than we are in our own fickle ways. And so the Lord used the Babylonian empire as a tool of just judgment against them. But even as that judgment came to the children of Israel in the form of exile, there was hope that this would not last indefinitely. There were words of promise that this would only be for a time. For 70 years, they were under foreign dominion. But then, in the most remarkable turn of events, in the most remarkable intervention of world history, God brought them back. And this is what we read of in verse 1. It is the Lord Himself who has restored the fortunes of Zion. It is the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, the one faithful to His Word who brought His people back to the land of promise. And this psalm could certainly be used, as you can tell from its content, as commemoration for that historical event. And yet you may have noticed that even though there is acknowledgement that it is the Lord who has restored them in verse 1, verse 4 prays for restoration. There is a request that God would restore. So how can it be both, you might wonder? How can it be, at the, on the one hand, thanksgiving for restoration and yet a prayer for restoration. Is restoration something that they already possess, or is it something that is needed? Well, the answer is both. Joy and wonder that God would redeem them, and yet a recognition that the promises of God have yet to come to their full fruition. This is where the psalm helps us to understand what the Lord is doing even in our own time. We are redeemed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and there are wonderful benefits that are already ours in Him, forgiveness of sins, peace with God, adoption into the family of the living Lord God, justification, being made right in His sight through the work of Christ, and of course, the work of sanctification. And yet, there is that which we still long for, that which we still need. We look back and we look forward. And if you're taking notes, you can simply jot down the already and the not yet. And this is exactly what we see in this psalm, a celebration of restoration in the first three verses and a prayer for restoration in the latter three. God's people had experienced firsthand the wonderful, loving, powerful arm of the Lord to bring them back into a land that was once theirs. They did not deserve it. They did not earn it. In fact, if they were given what they deserved, they would remain in captivity to perish under the justice of the Lord. But the Lord intervened, and He saved them. And yet there is still something more that is missing Still, something more that is needed, something that only the Lord God can provide. And so there is joy 
and yet there was anticipation. There was thanksgiving, and yet hardship still remains. There is delight and wonder that I am the Lord's, and yet things are still not set right. Things are not quite the way that they are supposed to be. And for all of us who are in Christ Jesus, I think this is something that we could all readily identify with. We know and have experienced the joy and the hope of the gospel, and yet this life is still filled with hardship and with difficulty and sometimes unheard of toil. But what I hope that we will see this morning is that the grace that has saved us from our sins is the same grace that is still available to us as we press on toward our heavenly home. And so as we move along, let's take secondly this morning the experience of joy. The experience of joy. Look at verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We were glad. There are several reasons why the people of God are filled with this exuberant joy and gladness. And it is a joy, as we see in verse 2, which cannot be contained, but is so marvelous and overwhelming that it bursts from their hearts in laughter and in songs of praise. So what is it that feeds this experience of wondrous joy? Well, first, there is joy because we belong to the God of history. All of these monumental events that happened on, again, this world stage, they fit within the grand design and purpose of God. From the rising of the Assyrian Empire to them being displaced by the Babylonian Empire to them being displaced later by the Persian Empire, all of this is under the sovereign direction of the Lord God. And when they were in Babylonian captivity, things certainly seemed bleak. It seemed as though there was no hope. Just turn one page over, if you will, to Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. You see, the people of God were known for their joyful, lively singing, but in Babylon they were mocked. Where is your God? Where is this one whom you claim to serve? You claim he is king and ruler over all. Where is he now? And they belittled them. Where is your joy? This was their desperate situation. This was the sorrow that they experienced as a defeated people. We wept for our home. We wept for the holy hill of the Lord. And we were being mocked and belittled by others. Now, this is a much different picture than what we see now in the psalm before us in Psalm 126 when their experience has now been transformed and they are filled with shouts of joy. It is sorrow transformed to joy because the Lord remembered and He intervened. We read in 2 Chronicles chapter 36 at the end of that chapter that it was the Lord Himself who stirred up the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a decree 
allowing the people of God to return to the land of Judah and to begin that process of rebuilding and restoration. And when they were brought back from Babylonian captivity to that land of promise, it's almost like a second exodus journey, this wonderful deliverance from bondage. Listen to one example from Isaiah chapter 48, verse 20. This is a text that speaks about the return from Babylon, but notice as I read the exodus imagery that is found here. Go out from Babylon, free from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the end of the earth, say, the Lord has redeemed His servant Jacob. They did not thirst when He led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock, and water gushed out. There's that monumental event you'll recall from the Exodus journey in which the Lord provided water for His people from the rock. And that same imagery Isaiah captures speaking about the way in which the Lord brings His people back from captivity in Babylon and restores their fortunes because it is all by grace and He is the faithful one. So what does this mean for your life? you might ask. You know, these are wonderful things. These are great things that happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago, but what does it have to do with me? Well, the same God, you see, continues to orchestrate everything from the most monumental to the most minute details of history, all for His purpose. The God who rules over the heart of the king and directs it as a water course is the same God who knows the very hairs of your head who numbers all of your days, and who continues to work His purposes within His time frame. And the question for us pastorally is this, that if we truly believe our God to be the sovereign God of history, then shouldn't joy be the predominant disposition of our lives? But perhaps instead of joy, our tendency is to fixate upon all of the things that are unpleasant to us from frustrating circumstances to daily inconveniences which disrupt our plans and desires to the grumbling and complaining about all of the numerous displeasures of life which collectively such things seek to chip away at that foundation of joy that should be prevalent within the life of the believer in Christ. There ought to be joy because we belong to the God of history who has done great things. But there's more that feeds their joy, and more ought to feed our own joy. Not only that they and we belong to the God of history, but also because of God's redemption. Joy as they thank God for redeeming them. See, these first three verses are reflective as they look back to God's deliverance. You see, the very definition of thankfulness, of thanksgiving, is joyful remembrance of the past. And a thankful heart chooses to fix the mind and heart upon things that you know you are undeserving. And what about you? Do you take time to give God thanks regularly in your prayers for His wondrous work of salvation, for the way in which you continue to see His faithful, preserving hand in your own life? for the joy and delight of knowing Him. 
I have vivid memories of visiting beloved brothers and sisters in Christ from our own church family who have undergone very painful and difficult trials in their final days in their earthly life. And certainly there's no pleasure in suffering in and of itself, but there is this underlying joy that they know that they belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and that passing from this life into the next will usher them into the presence of their risen, reigning, and loving King. He has done great things. He has done great things for them. He has done great things for us. He has done great things for you, though you are undeserving. The God who restored Israel is the God who restores you in Christ. And yet there is still more that ought to feed our joy. Joy because the end is coming. You see, when the people heard the decree of Cyrus that they might return home, we read in verse 1 that it all felt like a dream. It seemed too good to be true. And perhaps that is sometimes how we feel about the promise of eternal life. It sounds great. I know that it's coming but it seems so detached from the present. It almost seems unreal. You know, we talk a lot in the church about the reality of our heavenly home. We speak frequently about the return of Jesus at the end of the age, for we need to hear that constantly, don't we? But do you live with this as a reality, as a promise, Something that is true, that is something that is as good as done and ought to be treated as a present reality. You know, there are many things that we look forward to in this life. If you're a student, you look toward the end of another school year and at the freedom, increased freedom that perhaps comes with those summer months. As you mature, perhaps it's a new vocational pursuit that motivates you. Perhaps it's a marriage or the birth of a child. And the anticipation of such joyful things, especially as they become more imminent, as they come closer to fruition, can serve to motivate us to endure the present hardship and trial. The one who is about to graduate from high school, she has no problem staying up late to prepare for those final AP exams and, and papers, for she knows that that time of rest is coming. But you see, none of those things that we might hope for are as certain as the return of our Savior. In a book that our men have been studying on Friday mornings by Rick Phillips, he states that the future joy of heaven, the future return of Christ should motivate every Christian to live in bold and mighty ways to the service of our King. Can you imagine it will soon be over, dear child of God. The Lord has done great things. And that which will seem like a dream, that which may seem so removed from today, will become a reality that will endure forever. I notice last in this opening section, the manifestation of joy is evident to others. It's not a joy, you see, that they hoard for themselves, but because their lives have been transformed by the Lord's goodness, even the surrounding nations could not help but attribute such a remarkable turn of historical events to the working 
of the God of Israel. In other words, others see this joy-filled, exuberant response to the Lord's deliverance, and they cannot help but acknowledge that the living God is among them. And I think it's worth considering whether this is true in our own lives. Is there a sustainable joy that is evident to others? Joy, I would argue, ought to be a critical component and attribute in the Christian's life. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes that Christian people too often seem to be perpetually in the doldrums and too often give this appearance of unhappiness and of lack of freedom and of absence of joy. Well, Lloyd-Jones says that the Christian truth, you see, is something that should govern the whole of our life. The gospel is to dominate our entire life. The gospel is to dominate our thinking. The gospel is to control our words. The gospel is to shape all of our actions. The gospel is to control and direct the longing of our hearts. And if such sustaining joy is lacking, then where has perhaps complacency settled into your life instead of the joy of salvation? Where have you chosen to fixate upon yourself, presuming upon your own greatness, instead of the greatness of the Lord? But again, as great as it was for the children of Israel to be restored to this land, this is not about restoration to a geographical piece of real estate in the ancient Near East. But this temporal restoration is a picture of something much greater. And that brings us to the third point this morning, a need that remains. A need that remains. Again, verse 4, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. In verse 4, they speak about the need that is among them, but the text is not clear exactly what that need might be. Now, we read in the historical books of Ezra and Nehemiah that upon the return to the land of promise, there were occupants from other nations that made things difficult for them, oppressed them, and continued to belittle them as they began those plans of restoration. And there was hope that things would be much fuller and richer But something is missing, and there is knowledge on their part that God has made promises of something much more than what they are currently experiencing. And again, this gets back to that tension that we too experience. There is joy in our salvation, the wonder of being the Lord's, and yet we remain in need of final, ultimate restoration. We have the reality of the work of Christ and yet await his return. Now, notice that the psalmist speaks of our need for refreshment, likening it in verse 4 to the streams of the Negev. Now, this would be the southernmost portion of the land of Israel, a land that would be dry and barren most of the year. But when the seasonal rains would come, that land could be inundated and life would spring from seemingly dead soil. The psalmist here, you see, is looking to the promises of God 
when He will do essentially this, when He will bring to fruition the promises of redemption. Just as that dry and barren and weary land longs for the newness of the rains, so we live in hopeful anticipation of the return of our great King. And when it happens, just as a flood producing new life, He will appear seemingly without warning, and that final age will be upon us. And you see, that future reality is meant to intrude into the present, creating within us an increased zeal for the gospel, a renewed fervor to live for the purposes of our great King, a refreshment and renewal spiritually for our souls when they become withered and parched. And then we see in verse 5 that this need which remains will be met in the pattern of sorrow followed by joy. And perhaps this earthly life, perhaps your life is filled with tears of sorrow and hardship. Of course, it's not natural for us to equate tears with joy, but this is exactly what we read. Sowing in tears will reap shouts of joy. Now, this doesn't mean that as Christians we have a naive or detached response to the hardships that come in this life, but rather even in the midst of great sorrow and anguish and weeping, there is the joy of the gospel, the hope of our redemption, and therefore there is always cause to give thanks and praise to our God. The calling of the Christian life is difficult. Certainly we delight in so much in gathering to worship and to pray and to encourage one another, to serve one another, um, and, and to seek to share the hope of the gospel. But sometimes all of this is in the midst of sorrow and disappointments and hardship and grief. And so you see sorrow and joy are not mutually exclusive. Joy and sorrow are not necessarily opposed to one another. Because this is, you see, the pattern for Christian living. And this is nothing new. To the one who presumes that his or her hardships are so much more severe than what anyone else has ever gone through simply leads to isolation and pulling further and further away from the church. But we must understand that no matter what we might be called to endure in this life, it truly pales in comparison to what Christ our Lord has suffered for us. And the Lord is under no obligation to give us an easy, carefree life. But it is through hardship and trial that He works His faithful, sanctifying grace. Again, back to Sinclair Ferguson's book, He says that we tend to react to suffering as Christians in typically one of two ways, to either forget as soon as that hardship is beyond us or behind us, or to fixate. When it's something that's behind us, we tend to say, I'm thankful that that's over. We thought we had learned an important lesson, but we quickly drift back into the same old routines. On the other hand, we we can become fixated upon our suffering being defined by it, our loss or disappointment or some other experience of suffering determines our lives for years to come. 
We feed our minds and emotions on it until they become poisoned with a spirit of bitterness. And so as Ferguson counsels us, you see forgetfulness on the one hand, failing to learn the things that we ought to in the midst of suffering, or fixation on the other, equating our suffering with our very identity, both can stunt our spiritual growth and rob us of true joy. But you see, again, it is Christ's great suffering that makes sense of our lesser suffering. And I think we see this in the messianic hope of verse 6. You see, our great need is met ultimately in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. He who goes out weeping shall come home with shouts of joy. Now, as we read this psalm through the lens of the New Testament, this is not just some generic he, but this is ultimately Jesus. He comes in his earthly ministry, throwing, if you will, the seed of his word and weeping over the lost people of Jerusalem, pouring out his life as salvation for sinners. And it was for the joy set before him that he endured the shame of the cross. It was the joy of securing our redemption and gathering in a harvest of redeemed people that enabled him to persevere. And in fact, we are the sheaves that are gathered with him in his resurrection from the grave. Well, I think this is worth saying again. Without an understanding of the pattern of Christian living, sorrow then leading to final and resting joy, it will be easy to despair, to lose hope, to fixate upon ourselves, to question God and to lose sight of his greatness. But the psalm points us to the Messiah, to the Lord Jesus, who is the fulfillment of this psalm. He is the great suffering servant. He is the man of sorrows. He is the one who sowed tears, weeping for the lost who were under the wrath of God. And yet, there is great hope in resurrection life as he gathers a harvest from the corners of this world to be his own, the fruit, if you will, of his labors, his chosen people, redeemed, who are awaiting his return. John Calvin says that God will not only wipe away tears from our eyes, but he will also diffuse inconceivable joy into our hearts. And so you see, the calling of this psalm is really where we started. It's to be overwhelmed with the greatness of God. A response of joy, even in hardship, is a byproduct of our pursuit of our great God. And a response of joy and gratitude is possible because of what he has done, because of what he is doing, and because of what he will do for his people. And if you don't know such joy, if, if such joy in the midst of the brokenness and hardship and discouragement of this world seems illogical or foolish to you, then look to the man of sorrows. Look to the Lord Jesus who bore our sins 
that we might have his righteousness. Samuel Rutherford says that of all of the great things that we look forward to when Christ returns at the end of the age, the new heavens and the new earth, bodies that will no longer decay or experience the effects of the fall, conflicts that will be removed forever, no more tears of sorrow, but only tears of joy. Of all of those great things, Rutherford says, those are really secondary benefits. It's really Christ himself who is the reward. He is the end of the journey. He is the blessed Lord and the beloved friend awaiting with outstretched arms to gather his own to himself. May the greatness of our resurrected Lord be that which sustains his people in joyful anticipation.